Thank you. Thank you. I'm so sorry to do this again, twice, but I didn't want to wait nine weeks to get back. So if you don't mind, I'll sit down and uh, preach. Uh, Dave Burgraff told me I looked like a short guy with long arms. <laughs> He's just jealous. Okay. All right. It's funny. My staff worked to try to figure out a way to do this, to make this work. And they, uh, at this desk, it's an old desk from our offices, and this is my chair from upstairs in my study. And so they set it all up, and they had all the greenery. Um, they put a lot of greenery around the sides and the front, and that big flower arrangement in the front. And then they stepped back and looked at it, and they said, Steve, you know, that wasn't going to work. It looked like you were preaching from a casket. <laughs> that would draw a crowd. I don't know. That might not be a bad idea. Well, thank you for your prayers and your. Your cards, kind words. Marcia was a phenomenal nurse. I obeyed her. Most of the time, okay? We'll put that caveat in there. She made it profitable, actually, with all her care. I was able to finish the books, write a book, get ahead. Editor was surprised about that one. Working on a devotion, we were able to launch that. I'm working on with my son, Seth, going through the book of James. And so it was a very profitable time, spending time with the Lord and and in the Word. In fact, I got a, I got a, <laughs> a new theme verse. Um, you know, I like to think the whole Bible's ours, so I don't really just pick out a verse, but this kind of jumped out at me. Go back to Hebrews 12. Don't turn there. Just trust me. Um, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And usually you stop there, put a period. Now the next verse, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. <laughs> That's my new verse. I received a stack of cards from uh, a second grade classroom. And uh, some of these I just wanted to share with you. This, this one second grader, I love it. Rather matter of factly, let me know, you know, there's help available if I take the time. She wrote, I hope you feel better soon. I'm in the second grade class toward the left in the first room, and I'll pray for you if you've got the time. (laughs) I need to leave here early and get over there. Her name is Carson with a K. And thank you for that. Uh, I received uh, one card. I thought this this is priceless. One mother writing for her family said, When we told our daughter that you were having surgery, uh, she wanted to send you a get well card. But when she heard that you would miss being in church on Easter Sunday, well, that concerned her. And she wanted to, quote, make sure that Pastor Davey hears about what happened on Easter. She was concerned I didn't know Jesus had risen from the dead. <laughs> that great? That is great. Of course, I got a stack of cards with pictures and photographs of, of cats on them. Uh, I thought I'd bring along my favorite one to show you. Here it is. Inside, inside it reads, you'll pounce back in no time. That was good. I got that on Friday. I was really glad that that inhibited my healing, but I thought you'd enjoy that. Well, with the blessing of the Spirit of God, let's go back to the book of Titus and uh, chapter 1. In his commentary on the book of Titus, Warren Wearsby writes, it didn't take long for false teachers to arise in the early church. Wherever God sows the truth, Satan shows up to sow lies. False doctrine is like some cancer 
which enters secretly, grows quickly, and permeates completely unless it is attacked before it has a chance to spread. Well, there is a problem, as you know, on the island of Crete. The problem has existed now for nearly 2,000 years. In fact, it's reached the town of Cary. False teachers, false religion, false distortions of Scripture, deceived flocks, all done seemingly by well-intentioned men whose motives are actually self-serving. In fact, if you look at verse 14, you'll notice immediately that the content of their teaching is not the apostles' teaching. It's myths and commandments. In other words, and we'll look at them closely in a minute, but it's all man-made. It's all man-made stuff. It it might quote a verse. uh, it, It might sound biblical, but it isn't actually the Bible. All the religious mythologies and and all the extra commandments were, at this moment, at this writing, ripping the church apart and families in the church. All of this was being taught by men who wanted to literally seduce the flock to follow them for their own gain rather than to shepherd uh, the flock for their own good. Now, the apostle knows that the solution is uh, that the church is, is to be well-led and well-fed. And so he leaves Titus on the island to appoint elders in every church as he directed him. Literally, these men were to, uh, among other things, effectively unmask the false teachers who were teaching supposed deeper truths, who were expositing new wisdom for life, new ways to God. But it was all error. So Paul says effectively, I want you as as elders for the sake of the gospel and the protection of the flock to reveal these teachers for who they are. Stand up to them. Expose them. Unmask unmask their motives. Unmask their teaching. And even unmask their future. Unless they repent. Repent. Let's take a look at those three a little more carefully, those three unmaskings. Go back to verse 10, and uh, let's get a running start as he encourages them to unmask their motives, which really is all about money and fame. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that is, those among the Jewish community. And they must be silenced, literally muzzled, because they are upsetting, they're teaching obviously within the church, whole families teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. So let's go ahead and unmask their motives. Let's call it what it is. It's all about money. In fact, the word gain can be understood to represent either money or uh, fame. And more than likely, it represented for them both. In fact, by the time that Titus is Receiving this letter from Paul, the ancient world was already talking about the three evil seas, the Cilicians, the Cappadocians, and the Cretans. In fact, by the time of Titus' ministry, Polybius, a Greek historian, had already written that the Cretans, and I quote him, lived in a perpetual state of private quarrel and public feud and civil strife. He writes... 
They're tricky, deceptive characters. Money is so highly valued among them that its possession provides all the credibility they want. Greed, Polybius wrote, is so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma is attached to any sort of gain, whatever. In other words, it doesn't matter how you got what you had, just that you got it. That's good enough. Sordid gain. We might call that in today's vernacular drug money. Doesn't matter that you hurt people. Doesn't matter that it was illegal. You just got rich, and that's what matters most. That was the culture of Crete. Now, what Paul does next is surprising. He's going to appeal to common knowledge by quoting an unbeliever. He only does it a couple of times in all of his writings, but you'll notice in verse 12, he says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's flattering, isn't it? What Paul does is quote this man. In fact, he's, he's bolstering his argument which he knows is going to be hard to hear. So he's going to say to them, look, one of your own says this of you. One of the men you highly respect, Paul is actually quoting Epimenides, a man that Plato dated at about 500 years before the birth of Christ. And Epimenides evidently prophesied that certain battles would take place, and they did, and so they revered him as a prophet and a wise man, and and, uh, he was one of the heroes from the island of Crete. He was born on the island. So Paul says, look, one of your own respected men says this of the Cretan culture. And he says three things. One, you're always lying. You never tell the truth, in other words. And he says it in a way, so that you understand with that always lying, that that this is the rule of thumb. Uh, The culture of Crete is literally given over to lying, to deceiving, to deception. Aren't you glad you don't live on the island of Crete, but you live in this country where everything's so honest? Isn't that a blessing? Came across this in my study, USA ran the results of a survey of 7,000 resumes that were carefully investigated. Just random, they chose 7,000 and investigated them. 48% exaggerated their former compensation. <laughs> Thought they'd raise the stakes. That's one out of every two. 52% turned partial college or graduate school studies into complete degrees. 60% exaggerated on the number of people under their supervision in their former job. 64% exaggerated on their former accomplishments. And 71% lied about the number of years they spent on their former job. And the scary thing is, I came across that survey, and that survey is 11 years old. Another survey uh, taken a few years ago, just four years ago, found people admitting to calling in sick at work when they weren't, taking office supplies from their company for personal use, shifting blame to a coworker for something they did, receiving too much change from a cashier without telling them, downloading music without paying for it, cheating on their income tax, switching price tags to get a lower price, lying to friends and family about a, a multitude of issues, some significant, some insignificant. We also live in a culture of dishonesty. 
But we're Christians, right? In fact, you ought to read into this description everything that should be the opposite of our own testimony. So look at it that way. Don't go, well, those Cretans, wow. Look at yourself and ask the question, are we really that different? We really ought to live differently, shouldn't we? Lying, isn't that epidemic? But doesn't that show up early? You've discovered that the problem of lying didn't originate on the island of Crete. Or in this culture, if you're raising kids, you know that it originates in the heart of the fallen nature. And, and so you never have to teach your children how to lie but tell the truth. By age five, they're actually really good at it. Your job is to catch them at it. Not your kids, from what I've heard. It's the other sitting next to you. <laughs> We're like the little guy who got his Bible memory verse mixed up in Sunday school. And in that mix-up, he said a mouthful. He said, lying is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> and frankly, lying pays off in the short run. It, 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 50% of the resumes out there are banking on it. That I can get away with this. But he can easily tangle you up and catch you over time. I remember my father telling myself and our three, my three brothers often as we grew up, boys, telling the truth is a lot easier on you than telling a lie. When you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. There's an implicit warning. Don't buy into the culture of your island. Now Paul goes further, secondly, in verse 12, and he says, Cretans are not only always lying, but they're evil beasts. <laughs> The word refers to someone who is untamable, who can't be brought under authority. They can't be reined in. In fact, I found in my research that even in the days of Titus, there was already the standing joke that there were no wild animals on the island of Crete because the people were so wild. They're also referred to in verse 12 as lazy gluttons. The phrase can be translated idle stomachs. It's referring to people who are given over to this luxurious, opulent lifestyle and they refuse to do an honest job. And maybe you work with somebody like that. They work harder, more creatively out of getting out of work than working. But they want that paycheck. Now for these false teachers in this context, what they want to do is they want to deceive people and get their money so they can figuratively grow fat. They're always looking to pull off another scam. And Paul responds by saying, in verse 13, this Cretan actually is telling the truth. But I thought he said the Cretans are always liars. Well, they always are, but this particular Cretan is actually having a moment of honest reflection. It's true. Don't need to deny it. Face up to it. You, Titus, and the elders, this is the culture. Don't hold back. And the game of religion had already begun, of course, when Paul wrote to Titus. These false teachers wanted nothing more than, than through their greedy huckstering to sell their message, to attract a following. Religion was simply their way to scam people. That's going on today. 
Religion is the way to get rich. It's the way to scam. It's the new game. And Paul effectively says, Titus, this is what you're up against. Unmask them. Verse 13, notice this. Reprove them severely. Reprove them severely. That means there's confrontation. Now, obviously, this is within the culture of the churches. So deal with false teaching within the church, and that obviously will leak out. Reprove them severely so they will be sound. That word sound we've already encountered is the Greek word that gives us our English word hygiene so that they'll be healthy. Severely deal with them. That adverb severely could be translated sharply, abruptly. There is a place where you're not to worry about being rude if the house is on fire, right? Do I ring the doorbell? Do I knock? Do I wait? No, it's on fire. Deal with it severely. So also that's used here. In fact, it implies the skillful cutting of the surgeon's knife to cut away what is not healthy, bringing about good hygiene, healing. Many of you can tell your stories just as I can. I'm a sitting illustration of this, uh, this truth right now. When I went to the doctor several weeks ago, he said, Stephen, you did it again. I know I did it again. This time, you're going to have surgery. I couldn't excuse myself from the severity of that diagnosis. I couldn't ask him, what do you say we just settle for ice on the knee? Or maybe one of those SpongeBob SquarePants Band-Aids I saw when I came in here or something like that. You know, maybe strong medication I can be on for the rest of my life. Uh, I could use all three, but they would not bring restoration. No, I had to be dealt with severely, invasively in order for me to have help. Paul says, reprove them Severely. By the way, that command is in the present tense. And it's implying that this invasive procedure and its effects are going to be felt for a long time. This isn't going to be fixed overnight. Titus, you and the other elders need to know, you know this is, you're in this for the long haul. This is not a weekend seminar. This is not a three-year seminary degree. This is an ongoing call for those who lead in the church to wear the mantle of a shepherd over the long haul. Unmask their motives, and you're always going to have to stay alert because they always seem to crop up. Secondly, Paul tells Titus and the other elders, you need to not only unmask their motives, it's all about money and fame, but you also need to unmask their teaching, it's all about myths and fables. Verse 14, Paul continues now to reference these teachers false teachers. He says they are paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. In other words, get this, they are teaching. They've got material. They got their books, they got their diagrams, they got their outlines, they got their stuff. They are perceived as teaching. They have audiences. They have disciples and students. But if you take the time Paul implies, to inspect what they are teaching, they might quote the Bible, but they really don't care about the Bible. Of course, with them, the Old Testament. And to this day, even with the Old and New Testament, men in the pulpits of today are using the Bible as a resource, but not the source, which opens the flock up to all sorts of fads and and, and speculations and error and danger, and ultimately, the attention gravitates down to us. 
And I'm going to give you three ways to fix everything about your life. Rather than toward God. In Titus' day, one of these particular myths would be the book of Jubilees. It was a bestseller. It had made its rounds. Supposedly, it was extra information on the biographies of the patriarchs. And from that biographical information, the teachers were developing all sorts of disciplines and, 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 and principles. And it was all focused on man. In addition to that, by the end of the first century... Rabbis had given mystical meaning to numbers and letters. That's so popular today. And out of that, they would come up with these these bizarre interpretations. You get into the early centuries, the third and the fourth century, and you have the cropping up of Gnostic gospels, uh, extra-biblical gospels, stories, books, and people just lapped it up. Uh, Supposedly messages from God, like a book called The History of Susanna. A book called Bell and the Dragon. Sounds like a Disney movie, doesn't it? The writings of Tobit and and Judith were, were pure fiction. Even with historical errors and, 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 and questionable morality and false doctrine. The Gospel of Thomas is a good example, and you hear about that all the time, written in the third century, claiming to be equivalent in its authority to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It, it claimed that it had 120 secret words from the living Jesus, and people said, i got to get that. And they lapped it up. It doesn't resemble the gospel. It is sheer myth. In fact, it distorts the gospel. Then you have, of course, the Apocrypha and the Talmud and the Kabbalah and all of these these mystical writings that promote at best some kind of moral lesson. At worst, they redefine the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate alone. And then you get a guy like Dan Brown to come along a few years ago, of course, and write the Da Vinci Code, which becomes a multi-million uh, bestseller. And he puts a lot of these Gnostic Gospels together and some of these legends together in a bucket load of historical speculations. And you have an intriguing book of fiction, which unfortunately millions of people believed as fact. Oh, Jesus married, evidently, Mary Magdalene. And they had kids who grew up in the south of France. I did know that. Wow. Totally distorts, of course, the gospel. People aren't done treating the Bible, by the way, as some kind of special code book. There are currently, did a little research, not a lot. There's a lot out there, but there are 16 million pages on the web devoted to the Bible code. You heard about that? The Bible code is the belief that there are secret messages. And so if you take away all of the numbers and the divisions and you lay out the text in linear fashion, then you can create acrostics by skipping every third word, taking the second letter of each third word, or maybe going diagonally or maybe straight down, and you can create words. Those are actually secret messages from God. It's a code. Let me give you an illustration. The Bible code predicted Obama would be assassinated in 2009. Hillary Clinton, you remember her? She would become the world leader who would subsidize the Antichrist and launch global persecution. I knew it. 
Oh, wait, that's 2009. Why don't they come out and say, you know, we got that message from God wrong and apologize? No, they just go looking for another one. All kinds of codes that turn the credibility of Christianity on its ear. The Bible code, by the way, I'll give you a few more, actually proved that the South won the Civil War. Now, I like that one. Okay, that's a message from God. The Bible code has also been used to prove the existence of Darth Vader (laughs) and that the moon is actually literally made out of Swiss cheese. It's nothing more than a distraction at best. No spiritual nourishment in it at all. And evidently, these false teachers were preying on just, just, just that sense that, you know, what, what do the headlines say? What's the newest thing? What, what's the latest? Preying on that part of our nature. Giving them secret messages from God about the mythical past of your forefathers and what it would mean to you. But that's not all. He didn't just mention myths. You notice in the text he mentioned commandments of men. We have that problem today as well. By the time Titus was appointing elders in the church and on the island of Crete, Jewish false teachers had for centuries been promoting the view that God had actually given Israel two laws, sets of laws. One from Mount Sinai, the written law, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and also the oral law. And that's where the problem came. Because now you've got the written word plus whatever we can talk about. And whatever we can talk about opens itself up to ever-growing oral traditions and speculations and opinions and rulings and, and more rules. You think about it, uh, dear flock. Think about, think about how many religions and how many cults Have the Bible plus something else that has equal authority. It is not sola scriptura. It isn't the scriptures alone. It's it's this and the church. This and some leader. This and some other book. This and something else. These teachers were coming along and doing that. Yes, we've got God's written law, but we've got more. We have the equal authority of our traditions and our deliberations. Wait till you hear this new one. And what that was doing was that was just burdening down their followers, only adding to their problem. In fact, just just as an example, the Jews had this simple commandment from God to keep the Sabbath day holy. That was a specific sign to the nation Israel. Set aside, in fact, not even repeated in the New Testament epistles for the church. We now worship him on the Lord's day. By Acts 20, it had shifted from the Sabbath to Sunday. But you're a Jew living in that day, and even in the transition period, obviously, you want to know how to keep that. And so you've got the written law. Well, we have the oral tradition. We're, we, and, and centuries of additions have been, have been placed on that simple command that sign to the people, the nation of God. All these added interpretations. So that by the time of Titus, a Jew cannot on the Sabbath day eat his soup if his spoon weighs more than one fig because he's lifting a burden. I don't know how much one fig weighs. 
But I put pieces of chocolate cake in my mouth recently. I know way more than one fig, and I did it on Sunday, and I'm going to do it again today, Lord willing. (laughs) They debated whether or not you could move a chair from one room to the next, if you could carry your baby on the Sabbath. They assumed that taking a journey would be work. Okay, God didn't say anything about that, but it would be work. So we can't take a journey on the Sabbath. But then they deliberated over a few centuries, and they decided we could, take a, a, we could walk 200 yards from our front door, or 200 feet. But then that really wasn't convenient enough. So then other scholars believed that it would be God's will for them to take a rope that was 200 feet long, tie it to their doorknob, stretch it out 200 feet, and then they could walk 200 more feet beyond that. Whew. The commandments of men. They were damaging the doctrine of the gospel of faith in Christ's work alone. Listen, damaged doctrine damages people. Teaching them that the only way to find acceptance with God is keeping the commandments of men. Making sure you have all the P's and Q's down. Make sure you wash behind your ears, whatever. All, all that does is lead people and the church into one of two errors. One, to total despair. Total despair. Because you can't keep the list. And you can't keep it perfectly. And how do you know your list is long enough? You meet somebody whose list is longer and you're thinking, oh no, no. They've really got God's love and favor. I've got to add those to mine. Or, if it doesn't lead you to despair, lead you to pride. Look at my list. I kept it. Six weeks in a row. Man, can I sing today. God loves me. Pride. We are in the, in the beloved, not because we, we've kept a list, but because we've come to Christ and he's perfect and he has given us his righteousness which clothes us and we to this day have nothing to offer him. Even our righteousnesses are filthy rags but we do it out of gratitude because we love him. But we've gained acceptance because of Christ alone and his righteousness Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. He's, Titus, you and the other elders that you're going to appoint, you've got to be alert to this false teaching. Don't have any patience with the fads and the trends that are all man-centered and, and, and the legalisms, the commandments that kidnap a believer's heart away from the truth so that they're left to believe God will never love me unless I can do these ten things perfectly. And I just never can. Paul adds in verse 15 this interesting principle to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The word for pure here means clean. It might help to write that in the margin. Clean. It's the Greek word katharos, which gives us our word catharsis. Taken in the context of this paragraph, Paul is saying that if you have been made clean, there isn't anything that can make you unclean. That doesn't mean you can't sin. He's speaking judicially. Yes, you can sin. You sin every day. So do I. 
We daily ask for forgiveness so that our fellowship with the Lord is clean and clear. We don't confess our sins daily to become a Christian all over again. We don't confess sin for the sake of sonship, but fellowship. We've been declared righteous, clean, pure. You can never get outside of that. That's how God looks at you. In fact, Ephesians says you're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You're there. In the mind of God. Now Paul might be implying in this text that to those who are clean, they look at everything that way. They look at everything with the cleanest of intentions, the purest of motives. And that really ought to be something that we would, out of gratitude to the Lord, strive for. However, by contrast, those who are not cleansed, you notice the key contrasting word, those who are defiled and what? Unbelieving? There isn't anything you can do, if you're defiled and unbelieving, to make yourself pure or clean. You'll never get outside the dirt, no matter how hard you try. Only Christ can cleanse you and make you whole. Again, the implication here is that the defiled person then only sees the dirty side of life. That's his perspective. His life might be nothing more than one dirty innuendo after another. One commentator wrote it this way. We, we tend to change whatever we touch into our own nature. The pure who've been redeemed have a new nature. Attempt to purify everything. Purify their relationships. Purify their vocabulary. Purify their work ethic. That's our pursuit out of love for Christ. The man with a dirty mind soils every thought, this writer says. His imagination turns to lust every picture which it forms. He can take even the loveliest thing and cover it with smut. It's a matter of nature. Like the proverbial little girl who brought into her farmhouse, you probably heard the little story, you know, she brought in her pet pig and her pet lamb. She put them both in the bathtub and scrubbed them both down until they shone. Brushed them, dried them, toweled them down and put a pink ribbon around both of the necks of the lamb and the pig and then she went outside to play with them and of course they ran in opposite directions. The lamb ran for the green lawn and the pig ran back into the mud. Happy as can be. See, here's the difference. The defiled and unbelieving long to sin. Love it. Can't wait till the weekend. Oh, what'd you do? Oh, sinned. It was great. What'd you do? Went to church. It was great. What's the difference? What you long for? The forgiven believer longs to live a clean life. Why? Because he, he's so grateful that he's been accepted by the work of Christ in his life. He wants to act like his father. The unbeliever would never want to be without sin. Titus, unmask the motives of false teachers. It's all about money and fame. Unmask the teaching of these false leaders. It's all about myth. It's all about fable. Third, unmask their future. It's all about misery and fruitlessness. Finally, look here, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They profess 
To know God, key phrase here. Paul uses an interesting word. The Greeks are very specific, a word for know or knowledge. They profess to know God. He doesn't use the word gnosko, which has to do with personal, experiential, relational knowledge. Like I'll know you by getting to know you by being around you. He uses the word oida, which has to do with intellectual knowledge gained by information. In other words, these, these false teachers know about God by what they've read and they've got some information. They've got a little vocabulary, just enough to make them dangerous. They can say Jesus. And they're going to perform miracles in Jesus' name. They're going to prophesy in Jesus' name. And one day they're going to find out they did not know. Jesus will say, I did not know you. They look good. They looked the part. But that's all. I couldn't help but laugh. I've been listening online, of course, to the services. And Dr. Berger, I've done a, a marvelous job. And Doug Bookman before him. I couldn't help but laugh. Last Sunday, as, as, as uh, Dr. Berger, I've talked about his, his bowling. You know, he had his own bowling ball, his own his bowling shoes. I just picture him t- telling you this is bowling glove and he can't bowl. I thought that was so great. I thought, well, that's perfect. You, you look it, that's it. I got this a couple of months ago in my email. This guy wrote, during my physical yesterday, my doctor asked me about my daily activity level. So I told him, well, it's pretty good. Yesterday, I spent all morning outside. I waded along the edge of a lake. At one point, I had to jump away from an aggressive rattlesnake. I, I walked up and down some rocky hills, had to run away from some wild dogs, and I stood for some time in a patch of poison ivy. And the doctor said, you must love the outdoors. He said, not exactly. I'm just a lousy golfer. <laughs> See, a lot of us can understand that better than bowling because we've got clubs. <laughs> to me, they're shovels. I just dig stuff when I go out and swing them. I've got the equipment, another language. But that's really about it. Ladies and gentlemen, there, there is one author said, and I can't remember who it was, but he said, there, there's only eight inches between heaven and hell. What do you know about God up here? And what you've come to trust in him down here. I, over the course of these last few weeks, finished several books. One of them was this massive 624-page tome on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who turned double agent in World War II. And then right near the end of the war, Adolf Hitler, at his direct command, executed Dietrich Bonhoeffer. At the end of that book, when I finished it, I could tell you I know a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But I don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've never met him. I certainly don't have a personal relationship with him. But I know about him. Maybe you've, you've read some of this book by God about God. Maybe you can even quote a line or two out of it. Maybe you've never denied the truth about what you know about God that you learned from this book. From the time you were a little child. Do you know facts about God or do you know God? Is it information you've picked up along the way or do you have a personal living relationship with the Lord because you've come to him by faith alone? By the way, if you don't know that for sure, don't leave. We'll be here at the front. People will be down here. I'll be up here sitting down between services. I've got nothing else to do. I'd love to talk to you. Nothing I would rather do than talk to you to make sure it isn't just here.
but it's here. Now we got to hasten. I got just a little bit more. I, I want you to see two purpose statements in this paragraph from Paul. One you would expect, one you would not expect. Titus, when you appoint elders, you need to assign shepherds to every flock. Why? First of all, to save the church family and families within the church from harm. Notice verse 11 again. They, he's referring to the false teachers, must be muzzled. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families. In other words, they're literally tearing apart families and in that, the family of God, the church, the flock. You've got to wear the mantle of a shepherd to protect the flock from harm. We would expect that. But secondly, and this is a little surprising, not only must the elder save the church family from harm, he needs to save the false teacher from hell. Look at verse 13. For this reason, reprove them so that, here's the purpose, so that they, the false teachers, may be sound in the faith. Titus, the gospel you are delivering is not only to warn the church, it is to win the false teacher. That's surprising to me. You would expect Paul to get to the end of this list and say, well, you know what? Those guys are hopeless. Look at the description of verse 16 again. They're detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The word worthless, arachamas, with an alpha or an A that was used by builders who would be building a house or a building or a temple out of stone. If they found a stone with a flaw in it that they couldn't use, they would literally mark on it an alpha or an A for arachamas. Useless. I can't use it in the building. It's unfit. Won't fit. Leave it alone. Leave it aside. Paul has described these Cretans. They're wild. They're lazy. They're gluttonous. They're constantly lying. They're defiled. They're detestable. They're unfruitful. They're unworthy for even one good deed. You'd think Paul would get to the end of that description and tell Titus they are bad men and everybody knows it, so leave them alone. No, he gets to the end and he says they're bad men and everybody knows it. So go win them to faith in Christ. False teachers can be saved too. And so can those who follow them. Yes, they are after our hearts. But guess what? We are after theirs. I just hope we're more passionate. They are after our hearts. They can't have them because we've already given them away to our Lord. And we urge them to find peace and forgiveness by giving their heart away as well. And there's really no greater joy, is there? Our evangelism teams go out. On, in fact, I just got a call on. Saturday, yesterday, maybe it was the day before, by uh, one of our pastors who's training evangelism teams. And he told me a, a wonderful story. He said, you know, there's a young lady whose parents come here. Evidently, she doesn't. She lives somewhere else. And she came along, and she's been through evangelism training, and she just decided to come to Colonia and go out with the teams. I don't know what night they went out. And just sensed, I'll, I'll go and I'll join them. 
She was fluent in Spanish as well as English. The team visited an apartment, decided to just knock on some doors. They knocked on one door and a gentleman opened the door and seemed interested, invited them in, only to find out once they got in that there were two young men in that apartment visiting him and they knew no English, only Spanish. And she was able to deliver to them the gospel and they both received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that great? He told me that about 19 people in the last few weeks have accepted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. What were they before Christ? Defiled, unbelieving, worthless to fit into the building built by God. So what do you do, leave them alone? No, you go after them. In the name of Christ. No mystery to that. No long list to have them sign. No deeper code to get the message from God. Just the simple, just the, the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. Titus, go find men who believe that life is short, death is sure, sin is the culprit, and Christ is the cure. One little author put that ditty together. I love that. Go find men who really do get it, get it understand. They, 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 they figured it out. Life is indeed short. Death is sure. Sin is the culprit. And Christ is the cure. Go find men who will not add to that. Who won't back down from that. Who won't compromise that. Who will defend that. And who will unmask those who twist that. Go find men who will guard and protect and teach and love the flock to the point of giving their lives away to the pressures and the penalties to the delights and duties of that office. Titus, go find men who will live for the advancement of the gospel and the equipping of the saints and the building up of the church until that day when Jesus says, and it could be today, that's it. That's all. We're finished. The church is now complete. And he rides the wind. And from the clouds he calls, bringing with him those who've gone already and bringing those who are still here up. And he takes away his bride, the church, to the Father's house. Titus, go find men who live for that day. And when you find them, and you will, place upon their shoulders and their hearts the mantle of a genuine Christ-exalting shepherd. Would you stand with me? (laughs) Well, you stand, I'm going to sit, okay? (laughs) Father, thank you for the blessing of your spirit which comes from the study of your word and the fellowship of the saints and the singing of truth and the praying in the name of Christ, our only Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that if there is someone here who only has head knowledge but not heart belief or trust, that they will settle that today. And I thank you that the simplicity of the gospel does not require that they do all sorts of things. 
that they find something good about themselves, that they figure it all out, that they clean themselves up first and then come. No, no. We're sinners saved by your grace. Thank you.